I guess I have a few pieces of advice or guidance for companies that are maybe throwing their hands up and saying, what am I supposed to do in a, in a world where I can't trust some of my core vendors even? The fact of the matter is, is you're never going to be able to do really, right? There's, there's always going to be the next thing. And I mentioned before how complexity breeds insecurity in a lot of sense. And, and also we have that thing we say at Blue Core that is as simple as possible, as powerful as necessary. Right. And that applies to security as well, because the simpler something is, you know, the, the less likely it is to come up with weird edge case things that can result in security flaws. What I'm getting at here is, is that if you keep the number of technologies and vendors and components and the complexity as low as possible, you're doing something that usually equates to sort of limiting blast radius when things happen. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. As simple as possible, as powerful as necessary, right? Welcome to Alexa's Input. The person is probably more interesting than the tool that they're using. Welcome to Alexa's Input! Welcome to the fifth episode of Welcome Alexa's back to Alexa's Input. Then a six-year-old runs into the data center with a squirt gun and they <laughs> set that machine into a pile of sparks and flames. Yes, it's a good thing to do. Is it the thing we should be doing? Welcome to Alexa's Input. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Alexa's Input and to the second part of my conversation about security with Brent Lassie and Mike Hurwitz. I introduced Brent and Danger last time, or Mike Hurwitz last time, and I can briefly introduce them again. If you want to hear the full introduction, go to the last episode. But Brent is the Chief Information Security Officer at BlueCore now. He even started his own app security business at one point. Pretty impressive. Mike Hurwitz is a principal engineer at BlueCore. You might have heard him on my databases podcast. I'm very grateful to them for coming on. So I started off with the last five minutes because I thought it was a good way to, you know, continue everything. So what we talk about in this podcast is all the changes that have happened around security and data centers in the last 10 years, the differences in a container and a VM, for example, and what the different responsibilities for security professionals are and how they shifted with the cloud. We also talk a bit about enterprise viability. What does that mean to a software engineer? And then, of course, how does a security professional think about enterprise viability? Then Brent goes on to talk about how even in security, you know, looks matter. It matters how people perceive you as well as how secure your code is. And then we talk about some recent developments that have made enterprise viability better in the last few years and also some things that have happened that have taught have taught us some lessons in the last few years as well. We talk about the impact of a lot of recent events, recent hacks that have happened, how to keep yourself safe as possible. He, he gives a lot of great advice. So I am really looking forward to this episode as always. I hope you enjoy it and make sure that you, you know, subscribe to this podcast so that you always know when a new one comes out. I'll support it if you feel like it. I would greatly appreciate it. Also, follow me on Twitter so that you can see, you know, when I'm posting new things and new videos. My Twitter is Alexa's Input. It's all one word, no capitals, nothing. And also, I have mentioned it before, but I usually write blogs. I actually have like four drafts of blogs that I really, really need to write, but I've been slacking on the blogs lately. But I... 
a long time ago, I got this blogger site <laughs> and I decided to start uploading my notes from the podcasts that I take while I'm editing them. So I'm going to share those in the link. If you want to look at them, feel free to. If you don't, that's cool too. Just some of the main points and things that I got from this podcast are there. Pretty short, so it would take like a minute to read probably. Further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. There are a couple of things that come to mind about, about all of this. Like having worked in organizations where there was a really strong networking team and a really strong data center team. There is, having been in an organization that really took this asset management thing to heart and saying that that is the center of the world and you cannot deploy to an asset that's not in the asset management system. Therefore, we know everything is where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. was a huge boom. We actually could understand sure. what we had and we had some possibility of getting it right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll also say that in that same organization, the networking team was basically trying to recreate the network from the Israeli army where the head of the networking team had been trained. Oh, so I that see. worked out pretty well. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they had a plan. They got some good security uh, people there. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that seems to be really different now is that because things can move so quickly, the idea of getting something into protected space when the protected space is like a data center that has you know double locks and a guy with a gun at the front which is you know when i got to visit that's what i saw mm-hmm. um getting something into that space is actually really hard yeah. you know you have to make an appointment yep. you have to show id you got to go through the, the airlock and the revolving doors and if you do it wrong they're not going to let you through and the cops show show up and take you away well if I can get your Google Cloud key or your AWS key, or these days more and more your GitHub credentials, mm-hmm. right? As as GitOps and and the sort of hands-off CI CD stuff is becoming a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden I can get into your protected space. And that may mean hijacking your bill, as Brett was talking about earlier. It may mean things where connectivity is all you need in order to get to the data. Well, in an environment where getting into the room is hard, connectivity is hard, right? Yep. Yeah. You know, having, having people who are really good at configuring your firewalls and making sure that your VLANs aren't able to talk to each other and all of that, that was kind of good enough to say defense in depth isn't, that, isn't as important, right or wrong. There's definitely uh, an argument on the other side of that, of course, but now there's no question. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can get it, if you can get into our Google account, you can get into our VPC. You can go talk to all of our services. If those services have data that we intend to protect, or have uptime requirements that we have to meet, well, then we better be doing something to protect them. Right. And that is definitely a big difference from the way. I'd say 10 years ago, for instance, I didn't even think about this guy. Absolutely. And that comes down to why identity control is so important these days. It's always been important, but it's even more important now. And the danger that you're referring to is really the result of exposing backend administrative systems to the world. That's what it, that's what it is because it, you used to never be able to log in. You couldn't, if you, if you're, if you're an administrator of any single system in a traditional data center environment, you have to be either in the building 
or you need to be on a VPN in order to touch the administrative stuff. But now you just go in your web browser and if you've got the right credentials, you can get into somebody's complete administrative system. And it's not even just one administrative system. It's all of them, right? It used to be where maybe you hacked the Cisco administrative system for the network level, but that doesn't mean that you own the VMware stack and it doesn't mean that you own the Oracle databases and it doesn't, you know what I'm saying? It's like they were still, they were still segmented. You have to crack into each one of those where now it's like, oh, you got the AWS console. Well, it's kind of all there, right? <laughs> and you, now you've got control of all of it. So it does be, it, it is, it's an availability and an, and an identity control problem that's been exacerbated or whatever by, you know, the, by the advent of cloud, you know, for better, or for worse. So, yeah. The other thing that I feel like, and Brent, you may, uh, well, not may, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but when I was in data center environments, the networking gear or networking level inspection was incredibly powerful, where mm -hmm. whether it was for intrusion detection or surprising changes in bandwidth or you know, mm -hmm. being able to just detect port scanning just as a feature out of the box, you get that from, you know, insert your favorite security hardware vendor here. Mm -hmm. uh, in a cloud environment, you kind of don't have that, yeah. at least not in a way that they, the providers make visible to you. Oddly enough, it's much more difficult to do what you're describing in, in most cloud provider environments right now. Uh, why? I don't know. Right? I think that maybe it's because the people who built these things focused on feature functionality first. And because they are the owners of the cloud, they actually do have all those other backend systems <laughs> that we don't ever see, right? You know what I'm saying? Is it's like, you can bet that Google and AWS have, have that low level of, you know, network horsepower and inspection uh, running all the time. They just don't expose it to us as the users. And uh, honestly, security vendors were a little slow to have been slow to come up to speed and demand not only develop the access, but demand the access to that sort of data from the cloud providers so that uh, they can in, in turn hand it off to us. The, a lot of the traditional like big lumbering security vendors, you know, like the McAfee's and IBM's and Trend Micro's and, you know, checkpoints of the world and so forth were pretty slow to respond to cloud. Like they just, I think they didn't believe it. You know, I'm like, but think about it. I mean, is there any circumstance where in your current environment you would want to go buy a Palo Alto virtual firewall rather than just using the one we have? And the answer is, I don't know. It feels it feels like it feels like overkill, <laughs> right? Now, will it give you some of the things that you just described? Yes, but it also is flying in the face of of it flies in the face of cloud you know philosophy because now you have to create this really non-elastic sort of virtual network infrastructure that's going to route things all over and create the kinds of points of failure that you're kind of avoiding by by observing you know good cloud philosophies and so forth so well, yeah a lot of it's, it's been a challenge not just really you know like you said to the change in the paradigm of how you get access into things rather than a key card and, a, and an id you can just get in with a password and an api key or something like that but it's also been uh, related to a, a slow shifting mentality around things like firewalls and dmzs and that sort of traditional uh, sort of traditional visibility into you know packet level inspections and so forth so yeah it's a big change the other thing that i like to pretend when i can that a container is like a vm in my heart 
I know that it's not. I know that there are totally different levels of, of guarantee around yeah. breakout as a as a problem. For sure. And it's <laughs> it's not true, but it, it it certainly isn't the worst thing in the world. I mean, it, it definitely gives you the ability to compartmentalize your your workloads up at some sort of sane level, um, even if it's not perfect. Which I which I do like, right? And of course, there are you know advanced solutions and things that you can do to really really harden those, but it usually means going up to sort of the next layer, right? It's just like now you've got the container and now you've got to do something in Kubernetes in order to make sure that they really really can talk to each other, right? And that can get as complex as doing it with a bunch of firewalls and routers. <laughs> sometimes I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, "Oh, Istio, that's easy." You know, no, no, no. That has that, not come up. That is exactly what I was thinking when I said that, to be honest. <laughs> was was every time I look at Istio, I go, that's actually really complicated to figure out and get it going. So, um, it, you know, it'll get there, though. I think it'll get there, but it's not it's not a slam dunk right now. You just mentioned breakout. Can you describe what that is? I'm, I don't know in that context of what you mean. So what I'm talking about is if you're on a physical machine, right? How do you escalate privileges? That's what breakout would mean on a physical machine. I have a okay. process. That process is running as hopefully some kind of non-root user. So if you want to do anything interesting, you've got to figure out how do I escalate privileges? As soon as you take that into a VM environment, so okay, now I've got root on this VM, that may or may not be very interesting. So at that point, we're really talking about not just breaking out of my process, but breaking out into other VMs that are running on the same machine. When you talk about containers though, well, containers aren't as separated as physical machines, obviously, but they're not as separated as VMs either because they're all running a common kernel. So when you say you're gonna drop down into kernel mode and be able to run instructions against the, uh, the hypervisor, well, you can now talk to any other container that's running on that system because really they're just other processes. So the kind of attack that you would mount against a physical machine, which is really saying, get out of this process and then figure out how to get across the network versus on a VM where it's like, oh, I've got to now get not just the kernel, get root access on my VM, but now I have to break in through the hypervisor. Uh -huh. But in a containerized environment, there is no hypervisor, no. right? It's yeah. just the OS scheduler. So if you're able to break out, which is a much easier task because it's really not the same kind of segregation, you can get to other containers running on that system and potentially do bad stuff. Right. This is the kind of wisdom that I was talking about that a lot of people didn't have when, when Docker and things like that first started showing up uh, and everyone thought, oh yeah, that just fixes all of our problems. And you know, then... Uh, you know, those of us in the security world were like, well, not, 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 not if you're me, <laughs> right? And, you know, people figure out ways to, to get around that. Uh, it's still, you know, it, it's still a good thing. You know, it's like, I like containers. I think that they're, they're a positive thing for security, but it's, but those positive elements are only mildly related to segmentation of workloads and more related to the nimbleness of repair and, you know, the ability to, to just, kill access to something once it's deployed. So it's like, oh, once it's running, it's nobody accesses it. If you want to do something to it, you got to blow it away and recreate it, right? That's that's huge in the security world. 
to have uh, such short lifespans on on processes. You know, I would see because what server is the most insecure in the environment? The one that's been running for nine years. That's the one. Right? You can always you know, always can guarantee that. And in you know in our current world, it, those things don't exist. Right? We just don't have things that run like that. So uh, that's a, that's a really powerful position. And you touched on this a bit. The last question about how security engineering has been affected by cloud providers and how has security itself been affected by moving to cloud providers? What responsibilities have changed from companies to the providers? That's one of my favorite things about cloud environments is that it actually does make security easier in a lot of ways if you do it the right way. Too many organizations, um, what they did when they moved into the cloud is they, they took the architecture that they had in their traditional on-prem or colo data centers and they tried to just lift it and drop it and which meant that you're really just replicating the same thing on somebody else's hardware and you weren't getting a lot of the, the boons of, of of the cloud offerings that aws and google and azure were putting in front of you instead you were just taking what you already had and just running it somewhere else. That's all they that's all a lot of them are doing. But if you make use of the services, you start ejecting things from your technology stack that you would have had to worry about and now you no longer do. A great example would be things I mentioned already, load balancers, firewalls, all the routers. You can't even see a router in a switch in the cloud environments, right? There's no facsimile like you know yes we have load balancers and yes we have firewalls do you know how much time and how many big brains it takes to run a data center full of of like f5 load balancers i mean this is like a super specialized skill that now you know the three of us just go like oh i need a load balancer click click yeah put it over there and it just works right it just works we don't have to do anything else i mean that alone and you go buy an f5 you know a good size f5 i I've seen them cost as much as $700,000 a piece for some of the big ones, right? I mean, granted, the normal size ones are probably more like 60,000, but I've seen the big dogs, they're like literally over a half a million dollars. Um, so when you go into the cloud environment, you're not only getting all that benefit from uh, smart hands and capital expenditures and so forth, you're actually, you're actually reducing the complexity of your security program because it's, I don't, I don't have to do anything to secure the load balancers in Google. I just have to make sure that the configurations that we put in to say, yeah, push that traffic over here and push this traffic are right. All the underlying stuff, as far as patching it, understanding how it, you know, how it decrypts, you know, and then re-encrypts or whatever it's doing with encryption. None of that we have to worry about, right? None of those configurations have to be managed. And so it strips a, a huge amount of, of a security responsibility off of the teams like ourselves and loads it onto Google's shoulders, which is in our case, Google, but, you know, or Amazon um, or any of the cloud providers. Uh, when, when you're running in something like a serverless environment, uh, which is, you know, Google's App Engine, it's the uh, Lambda, and I forget the name of the other sort of servers thing in AWS. Cloud Run. Uh, what's that? We've, got, we've also got Cloud Run. Yeah, in Cloud Run, right? Those things strip the entire IT stack away from, from uh, our purview or responsibility, and it becomes literally only about the code. That is it. Because, you know, as developers, you, know, you, you guys write code, and you push it, you want to push an app engine, you don't do anything with, you know, config files necessarily that aren't related directly to the application. Nothing has to do anything with hardware, which means that from a security perspective, on one side, I go, woohoo, I don't have to do anything to secure that. On the other hand, I go, whoa, I'm putting a lot of responsibility in Google's hands and really trusting them, right? So there's a, there is a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, there's a little bit of a balance to be, to be gathered there, but, or to be met, but 
but generally speaking, clouds strip away the complexity from every element of your IT stack and development stack, essentially making it easier to secure it. The less complexity, the more secure things are, period. End of end of list, right? So I actually like that DMARC of responsibilities a lot. I think it makes things a lot crisper, a lot cleaner, um, a lot easier to secure, a lot less expensive. Some people feel differently about that, where they're like, well, if I don't have control over it, then this is a problem. I get yeah. where they're going, but I think the boons are of having a throat to choke who's responsible for that stuff is probably bigger than <laughs> than the the pains of actually managing it yourself. Yeah, sounds like it. So let's talk about enterprise viability. Danger. As a software engineer, what does enterprise viability mean to you? So for us, we have, or for any of the people who are using user data for anything, you need to be able to keep your stuff up. You need to be able to keep your stuff safe. You need to be able to ensure that the right people can get to your stuff, which is almost as hard as making sure that the wrong people can't. And in order to do that, you can sort of start off when you're small. You, it's not usually that hard because there aren't that many things. But as soon as it becomes more than one person can keep in their head at one time, what's going to determine your success is really making sure that you have the right kind of processes in place that people actually know how to do it. So if you say, hey, I have to store some data. Well, as an organization, you should have a way to do that. And if you can define that in such a way that people can follow it, you're much more likely to be successful. And the cost of failure from security type failures, the cost of failure can really mean that people don't want to do business with you anymore. They're, they or may not even be able to do business with you anymore, depending yep. on what kind of regulatory environment they're in. So there's a lot of the perception of safety that can impact your ability to be a company in the world. That is absolutely true, right? Uh, and that is, that is one of the, I'll, I'll divert for just a moment. So that's one of the reasons that you can't be um, a spaz and work in security, right? Because you'll never, <laughs> you'll never ever survive, right? You won't, you will not emerge alive. Uh, there's, you have to be a pretty even keel in this, in this environment, because let's look at it this way. Uh, so I've been leading security at organizations for, you know, over 20 years. And if there was ever a really, really significant compromise or highly publicized hack and loss of data or something like that, at any one of those companies, I'm the first one, I'm the first scapegoat, right? It's like, I'm out of a job, whether it was my fault or not, the board, the exec staff is going to go like, well, we got to get rid of Brent. <laughs> Right. Because they've got to they got to show that they're doing something right. I live every day of my career knowing that. Right. I mean, you were talking a, about throats to choke. Sometimes that throat is yours. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, <laughs> on the flip side of that, people in my role are a huge part of that enterprise viability. And uh, there's a couple of different aspects to it that are, are super, super important. I do kind of look at things. And I don't want anybody to take the wrong message from this, but there's an optics sort of observability side of your security program. That's just what people, what people see when they look at your posture and what they see when they look at your certificates and your, your, your documents and your, you know, your tests results and so forth. And then there's the actual security, 
right? And that's the stuff that is, you know, where the rubber meets the road. Is it actually secure or does it just look secure? And so you need to focus on, and the, the unfortunate thing is that you actually have to focus on both of them a lot. It is super important to, yes, actually be secure, but it's also super important to have explainability in your security program so that you can demonstrate that. And that is oftentimes about doing lots of stuff that's not fun. And that is doing audits, you know, doing tabletop tests, uh, having penetration tests run on you, having clients come in and audit you is never fun, right? But if you do those things well, you build so much trust with organizations that it can really be an, a massive, like of massive value to your organization. You know, I mentioned to you that I, that I, you know, do a lot of different things from day to day. And some days I sit around and I write a little code. And if I, and if the little thing that I built does what I want to do at the end of the day, I go, woohoo, that's pretty cool. Right. And I'm happy for a second, but I'll tell you where the, the days in my, in my job where I really, really feel good is when there's a client that's worried about something from a security perspective or privacy perspective, or they're upset about something or, you know, or otherwise read for some reason. And I'm the one that ends up going to have to talk to them about that and build the accountability and trust with them in order to make sure that they go, they come away feeling like they're taken care of and that they're safe and they're good. Right. Those days I go home feeling really good. Right. Well, now I stay home and feel really good, but you know, but you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's like laughing in mute and so funny. <laughs> COVID problems. COVID yeah, problems. Exactly. And so that that's a huge part of enterprise viability, right? Is being able to have that that those conversations and and then have the explainability and and you know demonstrable program uh, features that make that make everybody say, yep, looks like they're doing all the right things. You can't put enough of a value on that in a sense. I always say that I do I do perform two of the things in the organization, well, three of the things in the organization that no one ever wants to do, but but they're so important. And one of them is dealing with a security incident. No one wants to do that, right? But how you do it and, and how it's handled is exceedingly important. So you have to be able to do that. Um, you have to be able to deal with the aforementioned, I would say, red clients or upset clients or just even concerned clients, right? You know, it's like if some some security teams at some uh, organizations are just really tough and they come in, they come in angry, right? And they want to attack you and kind of tear you down. You've got to be able to manage through that. And then the final, the final thing that no one wants to do is step in front of buses, right? And that's the one uh, that is also, you know, ma massively critical to the enterprise viability of a security program is that you have to be able to go and and admit that you did something really wrong, and maybe there was a mistake or a compromise, and you need to be able to step in front of that bus um, and come away from getting hit by that bus with a stronger relationship with your clients rather than a weaker one. And I, and I believe that that's entirely possible in almost all cases, right? As because transparency and, and the ability to have those kind of those difficult conversations really builds a lot of accountability and trust with clients. And that's, there's, it's like gold, right? I mean, that's, that's a big deal. So I know that wasn't a very technical answer, but when it comes to enterprise viability of a security program, those those are the things that I really think about is, is like, yes, there's the, all that actual nuts and bolts and technology, but it's not, you know, it's not the only thing, right? I mean, it is a lot about people, right? And it's a lot about trust and relationships and, and transparency. Yeah, I think Danger might agree that engineering or maybe any field, technical field that you would think would be very technical ends up also being a lot about the people. I think that's probably really true. 
it may be surprising to people in the beginning, but I think that just engineering in general, security engineering or self-engineering, it's important to be able to communicate and, you know, build trust and build relationships with whoever you're working with. I think Brent's point about being able to step in front of a bus. As a software engineer, most of the time, the bus I'm stepping in front of is, hey, we broke something or lost some data or had some downtime or whatever the case may be. But that's a skill that I think really translates no matter what your position is in in this world. Being able to say, hey, you know what? We did something wrong and here's what we're doing about it. And Mm -hmm. having people believe that when you do it wrong, you're going to be honest about it and tell them rather Mm -hmm. than they find out when all of their data ends up, you know, out on the internet definitely a better position Mm -hmm. to be in. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I totally agree. So what are some recent developments that have made enterprise security or viability easier and better? Well, you know, I, we talked a lot about some of that, but I have a a couple I could add probably to the whole, you know, that like you said, like I mentioned the DMARC responsibilities and stripping away complexity, you know, at some of the lower levels of our IT stacks and all that. That's definitely one thing, but and I, and I and also I want to double down on the whole asset control and identity control is so much easier in cloud you know in a way because of the containment and and that that makes it a lot easier to secure things if you know the, everything that exists and you know everybody who's got access all in one place all in one pane of glass so to speak right so those are big but I will say that that two factor has gotten really good in the last few years. So that's one thing that I think, uh, believe it or not, I think cloud actually facilitated that in a lot of ways because rather than having to have two-factor authentication into uh, eight gazillion systems within your IT stack, you really only need to have two-factor authentication into the cloud fabric, right? And then maybe one-off like privilege escalation here or there uh, beyond that. But when you, if you've got a, if you're running a whole data center, you've got to figure out how to get two-factor on all of those components. It's almost impossible. I mean, you have to put it on uh, your network management consoles, and then you have to put it on your, your VMware stuff, and then you've got to put it on your on your databases, and then you've got to put it on the actual apps. And now you've got all these other internal portals like SAPs, CRMs, EAP, ERPs, and things like that. How do you get it on all those, right? Well, cloud has made it easy to do all that, right? Because it's not only, not only does our actual production environment uh, have sort of a one- one two-factor fits all. It also means that the 30 SaaS apps that we have federated into our environment are also protected by that. So even if they don't have two-factor protection on them, we still get two-factor because of the power of, in our case, Google Cloud, right? Having the ability to do all that, not just in their own cloud space, but across all of the different vendors that we use. So there's that. And then of course, uh, remediation velocity is is a key one. And then I like to say also that whole shift between the IT segmentation from development, uh, you know, created a lot of fresh eyes, right? Where people started looking at things in in new ways. And I even do like a, a CISO speech where I talk about 20 things we should stop doing. It's like a whole like like shame on you. Like if you're still doing this this year, this year you need to stop doing this as a as a security organization. Um, you know, the, those fresh eyes, you know, having people, having people like, like both of you who have vision into not only the underlying code base of the product that you're writing and the features, but also a deep understanding of the infrastructure that it all runs upon creates uh, a lot of opportunities for brilliance and, and cooperation. So I like the positive attitude you have. That's nice. <laughs> Thank you. So what are some recent blunders in this area? And by blunders, I guess I mean, what are some recent examples of things that have gone wrong that we just need to look out for or need to keep an eye out for? 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it starts off again with fresh eyes. Fresh eyes are also a problem, right? Because I mentioned before that now you've got people that are um, responsible for systems and expertises that they not they haven't done before. I mentioned somebody who like was a great great programmer but doesn't know a Linux prompt. So do, should they really be doing configurations and Kubernetes and Docker and stuff if they don't understand how the underlying systems work? So fresh eyes also means there's potential skill gaps there, right? For example, I'll use myself. I'm I'm pretty good with uh, relational databases, but I'm still sort of a noob when it comes to NoSQL databases. And so should I be the one that configures those and figures out how to build them and normalize them or not normalize them because they're document based? And you know what I'm saying? It's like it's just that's just yeah. one small example where in traditional old school environments, you actually had people who were responsible for running the databases. And if you were a developer and said, hey, am I doing this the right way? They would look at it and go, no, I can help you with that, though. I can help you normalize that. I can help you configure that database to run faster. I can help you build the indexes that'll make the queries like 100 times faster, right? Um, so I think that the fresh eyes also has a damaging effect on, on, on security in some ways because, you know, there are skill gaps. We can't, we can't all be jacks of all, right? So that's one, what's, yeah. that's one risk. The other, th you know, the, one of the other things that has been a huge mistake over the years and it's more of like something that's I feel is finally starting to be fixed. So maybe this is a boon is that hackers um, are programmers every time, right? Hackers are always programmers. There's no hackers that don't write code or script things. And yet all through all the years, we've always protected against hackers with network engineers and server people, you know, server configurations and so forth. And I'm like, why are we doing that? Why don't we send hackers after hackers, right? Like, I think that more security people need to write code uh, and understand code bases and the the cloud environments have allowed that to start happening where now um, having a firm understanding of development stacks and CSV pipelines and how development actually gets done is is more um, uh, is more well known amongst security professionals I would say so I guess that was a little bit more of a boon sorry and then that's yeah, fine you know and, and right along with the the fresh eyes thing is, is i think that the 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 rush to get into the cloud environment for some organizations caused a lot of resiliency and scale problems uh, you'd think oh why why would they have scale problems because it's the cloud environment it should be able to scale infinitely well you know what you have to build it to do that if you just take an old application and put it in in aws it doesn't just scale automatically you still have to like do a lot of work to make that happen and so i think a lot of companies made the wrong assumptions about what was possible and it actually damaged their resiliency and capacity in some ways by moving out of their data centers. Um, not, obviously they, they figured out over time and it gets repaired, but I, it's definitely a bit of a blunder for a lot of organizations. And then, you know, for security teams, I kind of mentioned curmudgeons, uh, curmudgeons one and all, lots of security people are, and I, I, I don't think I'm one. I, I, I try to promote not being a curmudgeon. Uh, a lot of security people have a seen. What's a curmudgeon? just some cranky old man or something, you know, just like the or a rumble, rumble. You shouldn't be doing that. Right. You know, oh, okay. Like and, a Scrooge. Yeah. Scrooge. Exactly. It's exactly. Okay. Scrooge is definitely a curmudgeon. Um, and so, you know, I kind of mentioned earlier that security's knee, knee jerk reaction was, was awful when it came to the cloud and they wanted to lean on really old tenants of perimeter control and firewalls and very traditional modes. And that was, that took a while. I think that security teams are finally just starting to come around uh, to understand that there are the, the paradigms have changed and that's okay. We can find new cool ways to do stuff that accomplishes the same ends, but we don't have to do it the same way we always did. So, um, and I already kind of mentioned the, one of the blunders that most companies have made is the failure to reassign uh, responsibility based on on cloud and devops and so forth and the reason i what i mean by that 
is that CIO, those are the organizations that I described as CIO organizations, the traditional IT, you know, hardware infrastructure, they're kind of disappearing. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not as common anymore. And a lot of that responsibility for the infrastructure and the security and resiliency has moved into the CTO seat, right? So meaning that it's more on the app application development side of things because now we're infrastructure is code, right? Well, the issue is that security budgets and expertise have not necessarily been given to the CTO. So a lot of companies probably need to go to their CTO and go, hey, now that this stuff's all in the cloud, you kind of own security and you kind of own resiliency. It's not really that old CIO model anymore. It's like the, the CTO owns it. And that means that you need to tell the CTO that, that he or she owns it, right? And that, you know, you tell them that they own it and then you have to also give them the budget to do it and the people to do it. And so that's something that a lot of companies took a long time to uh, come around to. And then of course, finally, I'll say that there's emotional blockers that were huge blunders for a lot of companies. And it's the concepts of, oh, it's not built here because in the cloud, you know, all of a sudden you give up a lot of that control and you give up a lot of that underlying infrastructure. So people say, well, it's not built here. We don't know what they're doing. They can't do it. And then there's the, uh, the this is the way we've always done it, you know, which is the other quote, which is never a good thing. And then there's yeah. the, and then there's the, oh, you don't understand our company that that'll never work here. Right. And I hate all three of these things with a passion because they're not rooted in any reality whatsoever. All they are is emotional fear of change. Right. And so don't, if you ever hear people say those things to you, fight them on it because they're hundred percent just scared. Right. It's not a reality. Yeah. Brett, I don't know if you know, but I spend way too much time listening to podcasts and as such, I've been hearing a lot about some of the big hacks that have happened recently and what their impact has been. So you know, there was the Eternal Blue Shadow Brokers thing, which is the biggest thing since Snowden, if not you know yeah. ever, in terms of the release of you know our offensive tools. There's been the big exchange hack, you know, over the last couple of weeks. There was Solar Winds, which was you know a defensive system. Mm -hmm. These are all of the things that we kind of thought were how we as America and businesses in America operate, mm -hmm. right? This is our attack. This is our defense. This is our big piece of enterprise software. But it seems like the environment out in the world has gotten, if anything, kind of scarier, both because these sorts of things are available, mm -hmm. but also that uh, people are using them um, in ways that either they weren't before or maybe they just weren't getting caught. But as a, as a business, what are companies supposed to be doing to protect themselves? How are we supposed to operate in this uh -huh. scary world, especially if you're a small company like Bluecore? It's hard, right? And, and it's almost, you know, I can't say that I have a, a super hopeful message because of that whole human nature thing I mentioned earlier, because like people are jerks, right? So <laughs> we, it's, it's really hard to come up with a completely positive message. Um, but uh, you know, I guess I'd have a few, I guess I have a few sort of pieces of advice or, or guidance for companies that are maybe throwing their hands up and saying, what am I supposed to do in a, in a world where I can't trust some of my core vendors even um the fact of the matter is is you're never going to be able to really right there's always there's always going to be the next thing and you know i remember i mentioned before how security 
you know, how complexity breeds insecurity in a lot of sense. And, and so, and also we have that uh, thing we say at Blue Corps that is as simple as possible, as powerful as necessary, right? And that applies to security as well, because the, the, the simpler something is, you know, the, the less likely it is to come up with, with weird edge case things that are, that typically, that can result in security flaws. And what, what I'm getting at here is, is that if you keep the number of technologies and vendors and components and the complexity as low as possible, you, you're doing something that usually equates to sort of limiting blast radius when things happen, right? And I, I talk about sort of the blast radius thing a lot, which, um, because it means, well, if there's one security problem, how many security problems can result from that and how much damage can it do to your company? And what you don't want is for a relatively small thing or a relatively sort of select vulnerability to create a blast radius so big that your company goes out of business because of it, right? I sit around a lot and think about company ending events. <laughs> it's so much fun uh, trying to uh, stay positive when you're doing parties. that. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like not the Sunday scaries, but the work scaries or something. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, um, you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm find, trying to find a balance on the trajectory of, of risk versus functionality and blast radius reduction that says, all right, if this and this and that happened, it would be bad, but maybe it would only be, you know, 10 bad instead of 100 bad, right? Can I keep that, you know, in order of magnitude smaller by doing a couple of simple things? So it's, you know, this concept of like protect the core, you know, watch the crown jewels. And, and, and if you, st like I said, if you stay as simple as possible, that's easier to do. Um, you know, also the whole nation state thing, right? This is, that's, it's so disheartening. I just want to tell you now that I'm not the first person to say this uh, in the security world, but um, you cannot stop nation state attackers. There's no beating them, right? They're, they're going to have their wins. And what you really just need to do is hope those wins aren't against you and, <laughs> or at least that you reduce the blast radius, right? Because they're, they really want you, they're going to get you. It's, it's incredibly a, it's incredibly difficult to fend them off. And if you're, you know, you're run of the mill corporation, you just don't have the facilities or the, the capabilities and the, the dollars in order to even mount a, a reasonable defense against them. But you can try to like take away, uh, like I said, their, the damage to your organization by trying to protect yourself from, like I said, the, something, something going unchecked and spreading out to become a much bigger problem. Uh, you know, there's, I've told you all in, in some of the conversations we've had about attacks like the one on RSA, where they lost all those seed values for their hardware tokens years ago, and that it happened because two people opened an Excel doc and those Excel, those machines weren't patched against an Excel macro. That was what happened. They did not reduce their blast radius. <laughs> it got as bad as it could have possibly gotten for them. And it took eight months. So, you know, that's a, that's a really large blast because it went on for eight months and it spread all over through their company and they got, you know, the crown jewels got exposed, so to speak, because of one small thing. So, you know, I think a lot about, about how small things can be, be kept small things. Um, and a lot of that does come down to, like I said, uh, people, right? Uh, it's always about people. There's this security professional that I can't stand. And I hope he listens to this. Bruce Schneier, <laughs> he's super famous, right? Bruce Schneier is very famous for his encryption work and so forth. He's also a complete curmudgeon. And he's always got something sort of grumbly to say. And I've disagreed with him many times over the years, uh, for the record, about, you know, on his philosophies. But there is one that I will not contest. And he said, 
if you think technology can solve your security problems, you don't understand the problems and you don't understand the technology. And that what he's really, what he's really saying there is like, it's a people problem, right? And if you go and talk to another famous security person, Kevin Mitnick, you find that all the things that he really, really focuses on have nothing to do with bits and bytes. They have to do with people. And so um, training people, keeping them alert, keeping them aware is, uh, is, you know, job number one, uh, because you can't stop the things like the eternal blues and the solar winds from happening, but, but individuals can help reduce, you know, radius and damage and so forth. Like a, that's, that's where I'm coming from is that's, that's the hopeful message is that, if, that on an individual level, people can make a big difference. It sounds like people sometimes unknowingly even open businesses up to these vulnerabilities. Even I think the solar winds, uh, I don't know, what is he, the, the CTO or, the guy speaking for Solar Winds, he blamed the intern for a password. Mm-hmm. And is there some balance there between, yes, people sometimes maybe open you up for vulnerabilities, but there are checks that we should make along the way so that we don't have the opportunity to make such easy mistakes? Yes, there is, of course, but those are not, those are imperfect. That's the problem. Is there imperfect? I mean, your basic yeah. phishing defense, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, we have three layers of, of, of anti-spam phishing, antivirus, you know, malware protection on, in, on our email systems that are the organization that the three of us work at. Three of them, three, three concurrent like levels of security and stuff still gets through, right? You know, there's still like random emails that we go like, oh, that, what is that garbage, right? Like impersonation attempts or phishing things or just general spam. They're imperfect. Right. The other thing is, is that not all, well, not all systems, of course, are created equal. Not all people are created equal either when it comes to security awareness. And hackers know that there's a, if you look at the people that you know in your life, all the ones who work like in tech jobs like us are pretty, pretty savvy. People who are general office employees in general who are used to working with emails and documents and stuff are generally pretty good about stuff. They kind of get it at least. But there's a whole huge part of our population that's outside of that from a day-to-day perspective. You know, there's no better example than the target hack that got was because some air conditioning company got compromised and the the credentials that, you know, target had given them in order to access their data centers in order to manage the air conditioning in the data centers was the reason that it happened. Now, if you, let me just tell you that I'm fully, fully sure of this, this next statement is that if I went to that, that air conditioning company and I walked in as a paid security consultant and said, Hey, all you guys who fix air conditioners, we're going to talk about information security today. I'd get my butt kicked, right? They're going to be like, what are we taught? Why are we going to do this? This is ridiculous. Right now, of course, you know, in retrospect, it wasn't ridiculous to give them that training and to maybe take some steps, but you can kind of see where it almost sounds ridiculous to train a bunch of people who are fixing air conditioners about information security, right? It just seems irrelevant. It wasn't in that case. What are you going to do, right? It's, it, it's difficult. You know, I, you know who I worry about the most is I worry about my, my mother and my daughter, you know, because on one side of them, even though my mother's real, relatively computer savvy, she's more easily tricked on the internet than many. And on you know, my daughter's side, she's inexperienced. She hasn't seen all of the tricks before. And so they get recycled through and, you know, kids get, get caught by them. So it's always about the people. The solar winds executive throwing an intern under the bus oh, is such a garbage move. Super for one not thing, cool. yeah. the, if the intern is responsible for your security, then you really can't call yourself a security company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one. And two is no matter what, 
it's not that person's fault yeah it's that was super uncool <laughs> right <laughs> even if, if it were their fingers on the keyboard either there was a process that failed or a lack of process that allowed solar winds one two three to be the admin password to the internet facing side of your solar winds yep. installation yep Yep, that's that would, not the intern's fault. <laughs> I guess that would be my fault, right? You know, I mean, I didn't work there, but you know, that it always comes back to just blame the security guy, right? You know, that's 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 a safe bet. <laughs> the security company are they all the security guys though? Oh, you know what? <laughs> don't be fooled when and don't be fooled when you've got companies that that deal in security software and security products. That does not mean their their companies are secure or any more secure than any other company. And the reason I say that is because while their product may be designed to secure things, they have their own budgets and network challenges, architecture flaws, you know, coders that didn't take, you know, take the right courses or learn about cross-site scripting. They all have the same problems. When I talk to my peers in companies like McAfee's and Sophos and those kinds of organizations, they have exactly the same challenges and 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 unfinished you know projects and so forth that i've uh, that i've seen over my career it's exactly the same problems so while their product may be very secure and it may be good for security that does not mean that they are secure that that is a that is a complete you know misrepresentation <laughs> unfortunately but it is true something that's true. Uh, uh, i don't know if if this was publicized or not so i'm not going to say who i was working for at the time but i was working at a company where all of a sudden we started seeing our consumers complaining about fraudulent charges on their accounts. And we looked and we said, no, no, this, this, you know, the, trying to not give away who it is, this service you actually did purchase and here's where it happened and here's where you did it from. And here's your login where you did it right before you purchased the thing that you huh? say you didn't purchase. And I'm like, no, 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 we didn't do it. And it got to a point where we started to realize, wait a minute, this is happening with enough different people that there's no way that they're mm -hmm. lying about it, mm -hmm. right? That, right? That everyone's colluding to steal service from us. Yep. And we we're like, okay, so someone hacked our passwords. Did all the digging in the world. Nope, nope, nobody hacked our passwords, or at least not that we could tell. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where's this coming from? As it turns out, our password database wasn't compromised, but what was happening was passwords were being reused across sites. So other sites that had been hacked, and this happened, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, because people can see my LinkedIn, I won't say which particular hack precipitated this, but there was a huge password dump that, that mm -hmm. happened. And as soon as that happened is when this started to occur yep. uh, with us. And it was really because of the consumer's behavior put our business at risk. Yeah. And fortunately, you know, being a virtual business, it's not like they were buying physical things where the unit price, the unit cost to us would right. potentially put our, our business at risk. But if we had been selling, you know, chairs instead of the uh -huh. thing we were actually selling, which is virtual, uh, it could have meant the end of our business, despite mm -hmm. the fact that we did nothing wrong from a right. security perspective. Yeah. And how do you even defend against that? What could you possibly have done? 
So I can tell you what we did. It was kind of cool. Oh, so I'm kind of curious about this. <laughs> we, we engaged a very shady vendor who I believe is currently in jail. And he provided us with an API that would say, it was sort of like, a, have I been pwned, I've been pwned. Gotcha. or have I been pwned existed? Right. But not only would he tell us what uh, accounts had been compromised, he would also tell us, hey, I have these passwords for those accounts. Mm -hmm. So we could then try those passwords against our system because I couldn't reverse the hash that we had right. for our password database. Right. Yep. But I could try stuff. Yep. And so whenever we found passwords that matched, we would tell the client, hey, you need to change your password. And that was That's... way more cost effective than going out and buying every one of these password lists out on the dark web. Right. Yeah, no, that's actually really wise. And there are services now that I think about it, that you could proactively build that into your platform so that if a user of your platform shows up in the list, you could force a password change on them or something like that. Although maybe they would just end up changing it to the one that was compromised. So who knows? But uh, yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good solution. That's a good solution. But you'd, but you'd never like pr proactively probably put a solution like that in place if it hadn't burned you is I guess where I was going. You know, it's like, what would you... Who would have ever thought, right? That's called credential stuffing. It's it's all too common, and that's why I do promote. You know, this is, I'm, hopefully Alexa will get you know an advertiser on this podcast, and it could be LastPass because this security professional says that LastPass is pretty darn good and uh, solves a lot of your problems. Um, and then if, like, it's, uh, should I say it again? Should I say it again as Dashlane so that they can we just pick? You can just pick and choose like who. Do you... Yeah, that'd be great if you, if oh, you could pass please. <laughs> password, <laughs> password managers are great, right? I highly recommend using them. Yeah, and what was the messaging? What kind of what do you do when something like that happens? Like, what's the messaging out to these people? Hey, you had your password compromised, not our fault, or is it? Or do you even send a message? You just say reset your password, and it can't yes. be the last password. Yeah, so it's... In, in this case, we were selling a virtual service, not something physical. The loss on our side, like it's lost revenue, but it's not like it cost a lot to send the bytes over the wire, right? So we just ate the cost. We never tried to say, hey, your bad behavior resulted in this service occurring. So you owe us the money. No, no, no. We'll just eat it and, and preserve the good faith. But we did tell them, hey, th these accounts have been compromised and you need to change the passwords. There also was talk, I don't think we ever did it, of a password shaming. So not saying, hey, your password was ABC123, but you'd be surprised how many of these bad passwords were like, 1-Q-A-Z-2-W-S-X, and people think they're clever, that no one's mm -hmm. going to try that. Well, yeah, they are, and they're going to yep. do it on multiple sites, and you're going to get burned. Yep. So yeah, there's, a, you know, there's a list that comes out every year that shows the top 10 most common passwords or something like that, and it's always like super embarrassing because people just have not learned. They have not learned, right? There's a friend of mine who was a little bit of a hacker in college, and he was screwing around um, on the big, you know, college systems at the time. This was way back in like the early '90s, so you know, it was like when SunOS was still a thing. He came across a dictionary on some hacking site that was the country music and metal dictionary, right? And he ran it Wait, as a password. Yeah. Country music and metal. 
yeah so it was these two different <laughs> so it was like bands and like song titles and things like that from like country stars and from metal metal music right <laughs> and he put it into a big list and he ran it and brute forced the the passwords in the environment and he cracked like in his first pass he like cracked like 75 accounts or something like that right because it was just so common that people would use band names and their you know favorite artists and things like that is it was just crazy how many he got on like a one pass through a through a college you know environment it was people use bad passwords that's amazing foray into hacking was uh using crackerjack against the password mm -hmm. file at a university not to be named uh and i got called in by my college's campus security guy and he sat me down and said you are so obviously an idiot that i'm going to assume we're never going to talk again to which i said yes sir and we never did <laughs> oh my gosh so, john lurchie if you're listening much love <laughs> that's a good one that's a good one. Uh, you know, I, you know, as in, in my, in my profession of obviously it's like, you know, I poke at things now and then to see what's up. Usually it's our stuff, right. You know, you know, I, I poke at the environments that we have and see if I can get it to do something that it ought not to do. But back when I mentioned the, the beginning, beginning that application security organization, application security was so not a thing that we, in a couple instances, we we're doing a sales pitch. And, you know, the developer development directors or somebody would be in the room and they'd be like, yeah, we don't have any of those problems. And we'd be like, are you sure? You know, we'd be like, well, give us one of your, web what's one of your web portals? And they'd give it to us. We pull it up. I don't know. We were so gutsy. We were young, right? We would like pull it up and do like an injection attack, like right there, you know, on right there in the meeting and be like, oh, really? Is that what that's supposed to, ha is that what's supposed to happen when you do that? And they'd be like, oh. We didn't think of that. I'm like, yeah, we bet you didn't, right? You know, so, and just kind of, we had to prove to them that these things were real, you know, like cross-site scripting. This is, to, to put this in context, this was before things were actually named cross-site scripting and SQL injection and so forth. They weren't even, these vulnerabilities didn't even have names yet. They were just, you know, things that we were coming up with. And it was a, it was a weird time, but that was always fun. It's not as easy to do that now. Brent, is there any last things you would like to add or remarks on um, security and privacy or engineering in general? It's uh, it's 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 hard to it's hard to protect yourself uh, these days from everything that's ever going to happen. Um, you know, do your best and uh, change your passwords. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I have a question actually. Since, okay. Uh, uh, you. I'm a big fan of the BruceSchneiderFacts.com website. Uh, is there a BrentLassieFacts.com website? No, I should probably make one though to con to contest his position on some things. Right, <laughs> I might have to do that. He'd of course be like, "Who's this guy?" But uh, yeah, I'll drop the link in the description when you get it out. <laughs> yeah, I you know the main thing is is that. I don't think that security people should be so grumpy and bossy. It's like, we're not, we're not, a, uh, we're not cops or we're not soldiers typically, unless you really are a cop or a soldier and you work in InfoSec, I suppose then you might be to some extent. Um, but really we're advisors to the organization and, and our job is to, to tell the organization the best course of action, uh, much like a lawyer does where a lawyer says, Hey, if you write the contract this way, you'll be protected. Or if you, 
you don't um, break the law, you won't go to jail, and you know those kinds of obvious things. But that doesn't mean that every organization follows the rules. They could still write a bad contract and they could still break the law and somebody could go to jail. Uh, Security is kind of the same way. Is that our job is not necessarily to slap wrists. Uh, it's, it's to advise the organization on the best course of action to keep things safe, um, whether it be the people or the assets or you know, the line of business or the data that we've been entrusted to or assets that we've been entrusted to. And, and that doesn't mean that the organization can or will follow it in every single case, right? There's, there's, there's a reality out there of balance between security and functionality and dollars spent and, you know, uh, potential risk and, and probability, right? You just kind of have to find that intersection that makes the most sense for your organization. So that's a, you know, I think that's an important thing, thing to look at for security people is to stop, stop trying to be a cop if you're trying to be a cop and, and try to be a, a helpful part of the organization that forwards the business plan uh, cheerfully, if sometimes a little strictly. Unless you really are a cop, then do your thing. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, but here's the interesting thing is that, you know, I'd, I'd oftentimes would go into a, into a conference scenarios and I once had this question where I asked people, you know, what, 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 what sectors do you work in? And it was almost never, you know, in anybody in the uh, law enforcement sector. And this one time I said, anybody in law enforcement? And this one guy raised his hand, I'm like, you? And he's like, uh, FBI. I was like, okay, you, you count. You're, like, you're a cop, <laughs> right? You know? So, uh, you know. He gave himself yeah, away. Yeah, he gave himself <laughs> away. So I was like, that's But usually there's not anybody. Most of, most of us security professionals are not are not really soldiers or cops we are we are we are should be advisors nice. well thank you it was a great conversation thank you both for joining me yeah, yeah likewise likewise this was fun i haven't done any podcast stuff in a long time so sorry if i'm a little rusty but i do like to talk about security and uh you gave me the chance to do that so i appreciate it no i appreciate you coming on thank you danger for also coming and adding your yes. perspective Always happy to, and especially happy to get a chance to talk with Greg, who I haven't seen now in over a year. I know. I used to sit next to you when I would come in New York, and now it's been like forever and ever. So, well, first, actually, then I couldn't sit next to you anymore because Alexa took my desk, and she's actually there every day, right? Okay, yeah, but you, <laughs> but there was another, the other side of danger wasn't taken, but then James took it. So we'll right. just blame him, as, yeah. and he's gone, so we can blame him. It's easy. Right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I know that I sure did. Again, make sure to subscribe. Make sure to follow on Twitter, Alexis Input, A-L-E-X-A-S-I-N-P-U-T. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the next episode where we talk with Bruno Aziza about what is data and analytics at Google. I'm very much looking forward to that episode as well.